In this lecture, we'll go over chapter two of the text, which is empowering people to change. So if evidence suggests that providing information is not enough in the typical healthcare encounter, then what can be done to foster behavior change with a client or patient? Well, by the end of this module, we'll be able to talk a little bit about coaching strategies, the difference between the traditional expert-like approach versus a coach-like approach, and um, the fundamentals of behavior change as it is presented in the trans-theoretical model. So in order to talk a little bit about what we're all probably used to in healthcare, we need to make a comparison between our current medical system and how it's set up and what would ideally work to foster behavior change. Because unfortunately, our medical system was not set up to easily address behavior change. Traditional medicine is where practitioners tend to focus on individual risk factors, not really behaviors necessarily. In fact, behaviors often are not a big part of a discussion during a doctor's office, but they might discuss risk factors like your blood pressure or your cholesterol or other biometrics like your BMI or weight. In fact, patients are more passive recipients. They don't talk a whole lot often during those appointments, and they're not asked to do anything in terms of their behaviors for the most part. And doctors tend to try to give solutions, and sometimes that's not a doctor's fault. It's because patients want a quick fix. Sometimes they would just want a pill or procedure, something that will fix their situation for them without a whole lot of effort. And so this is where we've gotten into this habit of assuming that the doctor is going to do this stuff for us. Um, in lifestyle medicine, it's a wholly different approach. We're looking at the big picture, the whole patient, and that means a lifestyle practice is focused, not individual risk factors, but the individual behaviors that may have led to those. In fact, the patients are assumed to be active partners in their care. A pill or procedure might have to be part of the approach, but behavior is also going to be, behavior modification and lifestyle is also going to be a large part of that long-term approach to trying to address a disease state or prevent a future disease state. Now, part of what can make it tough for patients to get used to this is that lifestyle medicine is a much more collaborative approach and we've sort of been conditioned to go into the doctor's office and expect this traditional medicine approach. And so moving toward a collaborative approach such as lifestyle medicine can be difficult for patients to get used to because sometimes they just wanna to be told, they wanna to be given a solution. But coordinated care or teamed-based care is actively working with other practitioners, and it also requires a little bit of humility on the part of lifestyle medicine practitioners because you essentially have to admit, well, you know, nutrition is not my expertise. I'm not a nutritionist or a registered dietitian, so while I might be able to give you the exercise prescription, I really want to refer you to a nutritionist for a specific nutrition prescription for you. So that means actively working with these other practitioners, not independent of each other, as though you can each provide what you have and that's all the person needs. It's 
you know, the importance of all allied health professionals. So this is where you come in and where you may receive referrals. If there is a doctor, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant who is trying to take a lifestyle medicine approach, then you may be who they refer their patients to for the exercise prescription. Now, communication is also fundamentally different, not only among the health professionals that are part of this collaborative team, but there's also a fundamentally different approach to communication between the practitioner and the patient or client. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the big difference with communication between those parts of this equation as we go through the rest of this lecture. So the expert-like approach is kind of more how your traditional um, medicine has been um, used throughout time versus a coach-like approach is ideally what you would experience in a lifestyle medicine practice. And so let's kind of compare these. In an expert-like approach, the focus is on solving their problem focusing on the problem itself, and then treating the patient as opposed to helping patients help themselves. Ideally, in a lifestyle medicine approach or coach-like approach, you are just assisting them with finding the tools so that they can make the changes themselves. So in a traditional approach, education might be key. In other words, throwing information at the person, whereas a coach-like approach, you know, might offer information, but if they already have it, then you might skip over that and go directly to building their motivation to making the change, to building their confidence, building their engagement with their own lifestyle. And so instead of relying on skills and knowledge of the practitioner, who's not an expert in this patient's life, you have to, in lifestyle medicine, rely on the patient themselves to develop their own self-awareness and insight. Because you as the practitioner, you don't know what the big factors are in their life. You don't go through their life day to day to know what their stressors and issues are, what their home environment is, to really know how to help them solve, solve the problems that are leading to poor lifestyle. So you really depend on them as the expert. And in an expert-like approach, it's kind of stressful in my opinion. It, you're assumed to have all of the answers. And what's kind of nice about lifestyle medicine is you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, you shouldn't because ideally you want the patients to find their own answers because what works well here is that if the patient finds their own answers, they are also much more likely to carry out the lifestyle change because they have arrived at the solution on their own and it hasn't been dictated to them from the top down as might be done in traditional approach where you're advising and telling them what to do. And so it's more of a collaboration and a coach-like approach that dominates lifestyle medicine. So this can kind of require a little bit of a shift in thinking. Um, and one kind of way to, to remember this is, in fact, if you take the words expert and coach as acronyms, you can kind of distinguish between the differences with these two approaches. In an expert, it is examining and fine detail the risks of that person, as opposed to having curiosity about their lifestyle and asking them, you know, to the point where experts might really tune in and, and get into the fine detail of examining it, as opposed to being open to their information. 
as opposed to an expert approach that plans and you know makes the solution for them. Having an appreciation for what works in their lives. Again, they're the expert. Explaining, repeating, telling them, talking at them, as opposed to having compassion being honest with yourself and the patient that you're not an expert in their life, but you would like to assist them in finding what might work for them. It's a much more open and um, collaborative approach that ideally will help them feel more in control because it is their life. So here lies the issue, right? We have to move away from this approach that we may have been trained with, where we're the expert, we have all this information, we went to school for all these years, and we need to give them lots of advice because we're, we know this stuff in and out. And more toward a collaboration and negotiation. It's not always easy to switch from advising to negotiating. And part of this switch from an expert-like approach to a coach-like approach has really five main areas where there are differences. And we'll go through each of these, but I want to introduce them to you here on this first slide. The first is sharing knowledge. Now, I've sort of said here that in a traditional approach, you're assumed to have all of the knowledge and that you just need to tell them. You need to advise and give that to them. Well, you know, we can still do that in a coach-like approach, but how it's done is different in a coach-like approach. And I'll, I'll describe that here in a minute, how it's different. You can give this information, it's just done in a different way. The next part is listening. Now, listening is critical. In fact, you may have felt like you went to doctor's appointments in the past that you weren't really being heard. Maybe a doctor or our primary care practitioner was distracted. Maybe they weren't even looking you in the face. Um, you know, they may have been listening, but not to what you were really feeling or experiencing. They were listening to your words only, maybe not gauging your facial expressions or your body language. And so this form of listening and the focus of listening is very different between an expert approach and a coach approach. Asking questions, that is also very different. Now we can ask questions in both approaches, but here it's the form that those questions take. Sorry about that. The form that these questions take is going to be very different in a coach approach, and I'll describe what that means here in a second. The approach to problems is also different between the two. In other words, who has the solution? Is it the expert or the patient themselves? And then who has the responsibility for the outcome? You know, that is something we don't always think about. You know, whose responsibility is it here? And so we'll go into a little bit, a little bit more on each of these. Now, for each, let's start by considering the expert approach. The expert in providing knowledge is this sort of teach as much as possible, inform them, knowledge is power. If you just give them more information, they'll know what to do. Well, that, as we saw in the last lecture, that's not the case. Just, just having the information and providing it is not enough to make somebody change. So, you know, maybe instead we should ask permission before we just give them the information. In fact, it's called just-in-time information. So ideally in a coach approach, you first check and even see if they're ready and willing to hear this information. You know, knowledge is power, but it's not enough to kind of move them forward toward change. 
You know, otherwise, why spend all this time giving them all this information if they're really not interested in it or they already know it? So, you know, what might this sound like? It might be something like instead of you, you should be doing this because it affects your blood pressure. Instead, you might say something like, tell me, what do you already know about the effects of being sedentary on the risk for heart disease? Now, they may respond to you and say what they know and what they don't know. And then you could say, well, do you mind if I share a few things? Imagine if you're on the patient side of that. You know, you would feel like, oh, wow, thank you for asking. You know, you might say, oh, well, my, my wife's a nurse and she is constantly telling me about what I'm eating and that I need to exercise. So they might already know this. So why spend the time just throwing them the information? Instead, if you find out what they know, you could then, and they say all this that they already know, you could say, oh, well, are there any areas that you feel like you're unsure of that I could help you learn more about if you're not quite ready for change, but maybe want some more information? So it puts them in control and how empowering that is for them to be in this appointment and feel like they've been heard. Now, this becomes important because it, it puts them in control and they feel heard, not assumed that the situation is as it's perceived by the doctor. But that's why listening is kind of a key skill. Now in the expert approach, it relies on more of a cognitive listening. In other words, listening for facts, listening for red flags or individual words, um, you know, listening for clues to signs and symptoms, but not necessarily getting a big picture. So in other words, when a patient or client kind of gives you a story or history, you kind of hear the things that you want to hear to fill in the blanks for what are they at risk at of, you know, what might this disease be or what should I be doing to treat them? Now, on the other hand, though, from a coach approach, rather than a cognitive listening, listening, you use more of an affective listening. So you can get an idea of how this is really affecting that person. Listen to their tone of voice. Observe, are they feeling really defensive? Are they feeling resistant to what's going on in the room? Do they really not want to be here right now? What does their body language tell you? You can look for the feeling behind the words. And this can be important because they may say, oh yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not really worried about my blood pressure. But yet it is obvious by their body language that they're kind of uncomfortable. So it might be helpful to explore that. Now I'm sensing that you're a little uncomfortable right now. May I ask if that's because of your concern about your blood pressure or you're just worried about something else? You know, just explore that. Give them a chance to let you know what's really going on. The the important part here is, you know, some of these feelings that might not be part of their exact words as you're looking for facts if you're cognitive listening. That helps you to determine where to go next with questions. You know, if they seem, you know, really anxious about something, that might be worth exploring. So in an expert approach, they tend to focus on key questions that are based on a expert agenda. In other words, there's kind of a process that they're going through in their head and they're trying to to diagnose this down to an individual disease or treatment. And so they're following a sequence of questions that's meant to lead them somewhere. And the differences often in an expert approach is that they the questions tend to be closed-ended. And that means they tend to result in a yes or a no answer. 
which means there's no detail from the patient or client. There's no elaboration there. So it, it kind of is a question that might be phrased like, um, will you, yes or no? Do you, yes or no? Do you have these symptoms, yes or no? Are you having any blah, 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 yes. Is it this, da, 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 no. So that doesn't necessarily lead you to get any more information. Whereas in a coach approach, you try to use powerful questions that are based around what you're hearing from them. And they tend to be more open-ended as opposed to close-ended. In other words, they tend to start more with words like how and what. Or even if they're not formed like a question, they might start with, they might be phrases that start with tell me or I would love to hear, or I'm wondering. And so that kind of question can't be answered with yes or no. It requires some elaboration. Now, some people may still have a real short answer and others real long, but the point is you're getting more detail. It's not just yes or no. It's just like when my kids get home from school and I say, how was your day? Well, that could be answered just with good or they could go into a long explanation. So the point is here, if they say good, well, what made it good? And so then you get the elaboration. Now, what about solving problems? The whole idea here with asking questions is to try to move closer to a solution to a lifestyle issue or a disease issue, right? Well, in an expert approach, it's sort of seen as an opportunity to use the knowledge and skills. You've got all these, you know, this massive knowledge. You've been going to school for a super long time. You've been in practice for a super long time. Again, you focus on the problem. And it's sort of like you as the practitioner have to find the best solution. Again, this is what often drives the close-ended questions. You already know where you're going with trying to figure out this problem. And instead of letting the patient or client guide your conversation, your own idea of how to solve it is driving the questions as opposed to if you use a coach approach and brainstorm letting them choose from a number of options what might work best for them it becomes an opportunity for them to learn more about what's leading them to these lifestyle decisions they can focus on the possibilities and maybe you can trade back and forth i'll suggest something you suggest something and maybe you hadn't thought of what i brought up but now you're willing to try it as a possibility. So the idea here is the client has the solution to the problem. The patient has the solution. They may need guidance through open-ended questioning to consider the possibilities, but it's their life and they need to find the solution or it really won't be sustainable. Now, who's responsible, right? Who is responsible ultimately for this behavior change? Well, in the expert approach, they feel responsible for all of it. That if if that patient isn't changing or doing enough, then it's their fault. They're not doing enough to help them. And so this, unfortunately, while also being stressful, it can really weigh you down. It can lead to burnout as a practitioner because they personally take on the entire responsibility of their patients. From a coach approach, we know that the client is ultimately responsible. This is their life. They're on a journey they need to experience. And maybe part of their learning process is trying something and having it not work so that they can come back and realize that I shouldn't do that again. It didn't work out for me. You can't do it all for them, right? So the coach approach really brings training to help 
clients find their own answers. Because then if they own it, ideally you get to the end goal, which ideally is the same on both the expert approach and the coach approach, except that you get a couple extra things if you take the coach approach. Not only do you get a treatment or a cure and ultimately health, but they may have a better sustained change, a better sustained lifestyle over time because they're the ones who found the solution. And they may have a much higher self-efficacy and self-confidence, which means that when future problems come up, they're much more likely to feel as though they have the ability to change it and move forward without it leading to a huge other health issue. Now, ideally, in a health coach setting, you want to eventually have clients or patients no longer need you. You want to work yourself out of a job. You want to help them help themselves to the point where they don't need you anymore. Now, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's all fine and good. Sounds great. But, you know, show me the results. Show me the money. Does this approach really work? We're supposed to be in an evidence-based medicine approach, right? Evidence-based practice. Well, let's take a look at a few studies and look at some of the specific conditions and effect that coaching had on behavior change. So these are all outlined in the text, but here's just a summary of each one. Now, in almost 800 patients with cardiac disease, when comparing the lifestyle approach versus control, there was a cholesterol drop of 21 milligrams per deciliter as opposed to seven. And that was highly significant after doing the statistics. Now, in a sort of small study, 53 women with diabetes, those women had better diet management, less diabetes-related distress, so the mental health component was better, and a higher satisfaction with their diabetes care because they had an active role in it. In another small study, again with type 2 diabetics, there was a significant reduction in one of the markers of long-term glucose control, hemoglobin A1c. In about 200 children with asthma, there was a decreased rehospitalization rate compared to controls among those participants who went through a coach approach as opposed to traditional treatment with asthma. And in cancer pain patients, there was an improvement in that severity of pain compared to the controls. Again, significant. So the conclusions when you put all of these together is that health coaching compared to a traditional approach led to better outcomes in cardiovascular disease risk factors, diabetes, cancer pain, and asthma. However, there are some things to consider with these studies. These were some of the very earliest um, approaches to health coaching in research. They all had relatively small sample sizes, except for maybe that first one. And they weren't very specific in these research studies of what their coaching program involved, which means comparing across the board was difficult. And in fact, they occurred very early on in the use of health coaching where there weren't consistent standards or a national board exam to be sure we're using um, standardized approaches. And there was not a whole lot of long-term follow-up. However, even with these limitations, there are some common threads there was a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the health coach and the patient or their families in terms of the kids with asthma. There was a collaboration or negotiation approach as opposed to advi advising in a traditional medicine approach. 
There was goal setting and accountability involved. And they did have an educational piece. But it was done in more of a coach approach manner. So reviews of literature since these sort of seedling studies have really tried to analyze coaching a little further as evidence that we should be promoting and embracing this approach. Now, a systematic review that went over health and wellness coaching literature um, looked at about 800 abstracts and was able to glean from that about almost 300 full text articles, of which about three quarters of those were empirical. In other words, they weren't literature reviews, um, they were actual experiments. And the common features across the board with these is that the majority had patient-centered approaches. And that's what lifestyle medicine is, that collaborative approach, not a top-down approach. The patient determined the goals, not the practitioner. It involved self-discovery and active learning. They played an active role in this process as the patient. That there was accountability, almost 90% of them had some form of accountability related. And they did have education as well. And that relationship with a trained coach was highly important in each of those. If we look at a further study that kind of pulled together 150 studies on health and wellness coaching, their conclusions were that health and wellness coaching was worthy of consideration for some pretty key areas in terms of chronic disease, if you remember what our leading causes of death are from the last lecture. That health and wellness coaching with heart disease, cancer, and diabetes has been confirmed as beneficial. In fact, there is evidence that specifically with hypertension, obesity, and high cholesterol, that patients could benefit from health and wellness coaching. So here we go. If evidence supports this approach, how do we go about doing this? Well, in order to go about coaching for behavior change, starting with the coach approach means collaborating with patients. And you might need to learn how to do that because again, it tends not to be a part of our traditional training as we go into practice. One thing that we might not even think of that's a great place to start is empathy and understanding. You might go in and think that you need to have some kind of conversation, finding out about where they are in terms of their risks. And while that's important to find out where they are in terms of their risk, it's also important just to understand where they're coming from in general. For example, you know, What's their home and work life like? What's their stress level? What are the things that they're juggling? Because that most likely contributes quite a bit to their ability to maintain certain lifestyle behaviors or not. So empathy and understanding is actually a core part of even starting this process. And then if for them to exceed, we need to help them find their own intrinsic motivation. Because if they don't personally have a good reason to change, me telling them all these facts and research tidbits are really not going to make any difference. And then if they can find their motivation, like let's see, say they want to be able to play with grandchildren or children and they're, right now they have no energy and they're constantly out of breath. Well, if we can find that that's their motivation, then we have to build their confidence so that they feel like they have the ability to move forward. And then when they feel like they are ready and they've identified what they want to do, setting goals and helping them be accountable is going to be key. Because guess what? It comes right back to the beginning and you start over. As you assess how these goals went, 
you go through another process of trying to understand where they're at right now because that may have changed. And then how are you going to move forward? Now, while coach training and standards have been around for a little while, there's some well-researched approaches to behavior change that have been around for a long time. For example, there's uh, um, the five A's of behavior change counseling. And while there are many different approaches to behavior change theories, they all tend to have a very similar basic structure. And that is starting with assess, that you have to get an idea of where are they now. And that could be you're taking biometrics, blood pressure, weight, you know, you're looking at blood work, looking at cholesterol levels, stuff like that. Or it could be also, and this will become important as you'll see in just a second in the rest of the lecture, readiness to change. You know, knowing their biometrics is great, but again, that's focusing on their risk factors. It can also be really helpful to know how they're feeling in this whole process. Do they want to change? Well, that might alter the entire route of your conversation if they're ready to change or not. Advising. And I don't necessarily mean in the expert approach of advising. Here, we are going to figure out alongside of them through collaboration, the direction. And that's partly because now, ideally, you're going to steer them away from poor choices and more toward healthier ones. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. Moving in the direction, helping recommend ways that they move toward a healthier lifestyle. But probably the biggest key, and you'll see that's why it's in bold, is they have to agree. Because if they don't buy into this whole process, they won't be committed to the change. So it's really important. And that's why having them assist you in setting those goals is going to be key. Because if you told them, hey, you know, I think based on what I'm hearing from you, it would be best for you to work this week on eating more vegetables. I think we can work later on exercise. You should just really work this week on eating more vegetables. That just would not feel right. You want to assist them in creating those goals because if it resonates with them and they're feeling energy around it for the week, they're going to be able to carry it out. Whereas they're kind of going to kind of going to resent it if it was told to them what they should do. And again, this creates some accountability by helping set those goals. And then arranging some sort of follow-up. This is where that accountability is, right? We can set goals and that's great. But if nobody ever follows up with you to see whether you completed those goals and how you did with it, then you can't really move forward. Um, it's it, This is an approach that kind of structures a lot of behavior change, but probably one of my favorites because it's made such huge contributions in many different types of behavior change is a trans-theoretical model. And you may know this also by the name Stages of Change. And the reason this is so helpful is because it allows you to be really smart and efficient about how you interact with patients or clients. So if a person is not ready to change, then you would use a totally different approach with him or her so that you're not really wasting your time. And they also don't feel as though they're frustrated with this whole interaction or process. Now, these stages range from pre-contemplation all the way up to action and maintenance. And this continuum here goes from having no awareness 
or intent to change whatsoever. All the way to regularly engaging in this lifestyle behavior, or in some cases avoiding it in the case of smoking. And so what the researchers who developed the trans theoretical model realized was that there are certain processes that occur more in certain stages. And so that means that if you are dealing with somebody who isn't really even thinking remotely about changing their behavior, then you need to try to use these processes to move them forward. Whereas if somebody's in preparation, considering getting started, it's a totally different set of processes or approaches that would guide your conversations. So let's go into these a little bit more. And one of the things I want to mention before we go into each of these is while this seems like a linear process, it's really not. It's really more of a spiral or circular kind of process because a lot of times people will move from pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation And then they might kind of go back to contemplation. You know, sometimes this getting to the action phase or maybe even they get to action to maintenance for a little while and they pop back down to a previous stage. It's really not a linear process. And so it's also good to help a patient or client be aware of that because they don't want to be frustrated, right? They don't be like, well, I was doing so good for like six months and now all of a sudden things are bad. And that's normal. That's okay. And so helping them to realize that it's not a linear process either. You don't want them to feel like a failure because that's going to create a barrier to moving forward. So let's look a little bit more closely at how each of these might fit into a coach approach. So starting with pre-contemplation, the characteristics of this stage is they're totally resistant to change. In fact, they have no intention of taking any action in the foreseeable future. They may not be aware of the need to change, or they may not have a lot of information about it. But either way, the cons way outweigh the pros in this case. I don't want to change. These are all the bad things that, you know, I'd have to do if I changed. And the good things are not enough to make me want to do this. And so if you're approaching this kind of client or patient, you want to kind of create some experiential processes, some things that begin to resonate with them. One of them will be to raise their consciousness. In other words, create some awareness around the behavior or what it can lead to. And this sounds all fancy. Dramatic relief just means sort of the emotional release. And that means that, you know, again, this is why that empathy or understanding is important because you may not realize that part of the reason they're still in this place is they have some anxiety or fear or trepidation about something. And so giving space for that can be really good. Environmental reevaluation is where you evaluate how your behavior might be affecting your surroundings. And that might be people, it might be community, it might be work. There are different levels of that. And then social liberation, which is where you kind of realize that maybe the community itself could support you, that things are changing in society that will make your change not as hard as you think. So the key here is understanding and you don't have to push it. Hey, I understand that you're not ready to make this change, but I'm here to support you if you'd like more information. And so this is where you can kind of get into that coach approach and share facts with permission. 
So consciousness raising is this raising of awareness, and often the awareness comes from getting new information. Now, getting this new information shouldn't just be, I'm going to spit it out at you. As I mentioned previously, in terms of how you share information in a coach approach, you often first say, tell me what you know about how smoking affects asthma. And then if they, you know, explain something, you could say, well, do you mind if I share a little bit of information about that? And so again, that puts it as an option for them and they feel less threatened and less talked down to. So you can, again, ask if they would like to hear about this or that. And so you can share those facts or ideas or tips in a way that is less um, overbearing and threatening. And this can actually be eye-opening from a patient perspective because they have been expecting through traditional medicine to be told what to do for a long time, right? Sometimes actually being given the freedom not to change makes them consider doing it. So this is counterintuitive that you're going to sort of ask their permission to do things. They probably are not used to that kind of approach. Now, with getting new information, there's a possibility that this raises some emotions, which is why dramatic relief or that emotional release could be sort of the next step um, or part. Sorry, this pen is not working today. This could be another part of the pre-contemplation step. Here you've got this new information. It may be that they are overwhelmed. They may be like, wow, I had no idea that my smoking was causing my child's asthma or was exacerbating my child's asthma. And so some of these things could bring fear, anxiety, a lot of very negative emotions. And again, just give that space. That is okay. They may feel overwhelmed and and this at first could make them feel as though they have no idea how to get started and they just kind of shut down. But... It could also lead to sort of anticipating relief. They may begin to realize as they think about and process it that if they start making healthy changes, that they will get a release of these negative emotions. They may be able to move forward and have less of these overwhelming fear, anxiety, concerns. So it's kind of a process. And in fact, in some cases, the emotions could turn positive and that they feel inspired by others who have made healthy changes and they realize, you know, if so-and-so did it, I can do it too. And they may begin to see that their mindset is changing a little bit. Now, part of this may be, as I said, that they're beginning to consider the effect of their behaviors on others. This is called environmental reevaluation. And so here, it could be that the presence or absence of their personal habit affects their immediate family. It could be affecting individuals that they work with. Um, You know, for example, a parent's eating habits that are leading to poor eating habits in their children as they grow up. And it may be that that is their motivation, that they want their children to go up and be healthy and not struggle with these same things that they are struggling with right now. And so that makes them want to change. Now here, it may also be helpful to consider the societal or, pub- societal or public support. So they realize what they're doing is affecting others. 
Now, what about what's happening in the public affecting them, in society affecting them? It's possible they may realize, hey, you know, I used to be sort of frustrated that certain places I went, I couldn't smoke. But maybe that's a good thing. If I'm trying to change my behavior, a smoke-free zone actually could help me out, remove some of that decision-making that I would have to do because I'm not allowed to in this area anyway. Or healthy options, maybe being more available. Or even just the chance to evaluate for yourself. For example, many fast food restaurants or or other dine-in restaurants that have calories now listed on their menus to help people to make those kinds of decisions themselves. Realizing that there may be supports out there or organizations that they can join some sort of support system that's already out there. And so at the end of all of this discussion with the pre-contemplator, here's the key thing I want you to remember because it's counterintuitive to what we may have always learned in terms of practice. You can say, take the pressure off. Pre-contemplators are not even contemplating, thinking about changing at all, and that's okay. That's the stage they're in. So you say, you know, I know you're not really ready to change. You're not really ready to exercise using that example. But know that when you're ready or if you'd like more information, I'm here to help. And that takes such a load off. It's a totally different approach, which is why it takes a little bit of practice. Now, what if they do begin to seriously consider changing? Well, that leads us to contemplation. What defines contemplation is that they are thinking about it and they are maybe even considering making this change within the next six months. Now, unfortunately, in some cases, people stay in this stage for a real long time. But here, rather than the cons being greater than the pros, they're actually about equal. And that leads to ambivalence. They, some, sometimes they're like, yeah, that'd be great. But on the other hand, this is not so great about it. And they go back and forth. It's this sort of seesaw stage. Back and forth, back and forth, pros and cons. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The approaches here, rather than that affective sort of emotional, um, it's cognitive. So similar to pre-contemplation, you can continue to use consciousness raising, creating awareness, fostering those emotions, evaluating how this affects the people around them and what things in society might help. But you add in this next process, self-reevaluation. And what's key here is that they begin to create a different self-image. And so in order to create a different self-image, they need to create a vision of themselves and find out what motivates them. So reevaluating how you view yourself can be an emotional process too. It kind of combines both cognitive and affective approaches. This means that they may need to think about themselves and their unhappy unhealthy habit and try to create a new image of them not doing that. So you can sort of create both sides of the coin here since we know that they're balancing the pros and cons. Now here's where you are now but can you imagine, do the visioning, imagine yourself if you were free of smoking how would you feel about yourself? This can kind of let them create with or connect with what they value in their life so that they can move forward and grasp onto those values and let that be their motivation. You know, I really value my family and my kids. 
and my son has asthma and my family doesn't like to be around me at family picnics when I'm smoking. Maybe I would get to spend more time with them if I wasn't smoking. So there's this new image that they have to be able to create for themselves. So this values clarification and maybe even identifying healthy role models, you know, hey, my cousin so-and-so, they quit a few years ago. Maybe I can talk to them a little bit. And so this is where some of your conversation can get really interesting, right? You can really get down to the nitty gritty. So you might do that balance. Consider what things would be like if they stayed the same. In an exercise example, you know, what would things be like if you did not begin the exercise program? So this might bring up some emotions about, well, I'm probably going to stay on blood pressure medication. I might not be able to spend very much time with my grandkids because I don't have the energy. And then what would things be like if you did begin an exercise program? Oh man, I'd be able to go on hikes with my grandkids. Maybe I could get lower blood pressure medication. So then they begin to do this seesaw again, but perhaps helping them more toward balancing in the direction of the pros of change. And in order to help get that balance more toward pros, you can say, all right, well, how important is exercise to you? And then you work on finding those motivators, those intrinsic motivators. And it can't be external. Well, I'm doing this because my doctor says I have to. That just doesn't work. They need to own it. It needs to be internal, right? And so this may mean that they have to identify some sort of reason that resonates with them emotionally, because that's going to be how they maintain and move forward. So they've really thought about it now and they're beginning to see more pros. That's when people tend to move into preparation. At this point, the pros outweigh the cons and they do intend to take action, usually within the next month. And it begins to be a preparation and planning stage. And this is where you're getting them ready for the action phase. They will continue to sort of create a new self-image, right? They're still working on that part, but you're going to also add in a few things that will help them continue to prepare, to plan and get ready. One of them is to sort of make a commitment. And this is termed self-liberation. So free yourself to grasp the new vision, the new self-image, and move forward. And then find a support system to help you do this. And you may need to find things that you need to swap out for those other behaviors so that you can be successful. So let's go into each of these. In addition to that self-reevaluation part, right? You need to do this self-liberation. Make a commitment. You've got this belief that you can change and now you've got to commit to act on that belief. So here's where you can discuss, op discuss options. And ideally, it should be from the client, their ideas. And this is because if you can have them generate the ideas that resonate with their own intrinsic motivation, then they're more likely to follow through. Now, making that commitment could be with you as the practitioner, setting some goals of what you will do in the action phase or what will move you closer to the action phase because goals can even be set for something that's not yet doing that activity. So, you know, if they're not quite ready to exercise, a goal could even be that they're going to research different gyms. They're going to research different home exercise programs that they can do in their living room. So that can even be part of this process with that 
options and ideas and setting goals. But something else that can really help with commitment is telling someone else you're going to do it. Because often then you feel like, well, I can't let them down. I told them I was going to do it. And they're probably going to ask me about it. So this can be really important to moving forward and believing in themselves that they can do this. And this is where the helping relationships come in, right? That support. So if they can tell somebody that they're going to do it or better yet, have that person do it with them, that's going to be really useful actually in all stages, but particularly in this preparation stage, because that might be what gets them into action to feel confident that they can move forward. That action phase is going to have also counter conditioning in addition to helping relationships. This means sort of replacing some of those things with substitutes that are more acceptable, right? Now, in terms of things that are more acceptable here, it might be um, a behavior or a thought. So it could be Let's say, oh, I, I can just, might as well just eat the rest of these cookies. I already spoiled my diet for this week or for the day. And then ask them, well, when that comes up, what thoughts could you substitute instead? Instead, you could be like, I don't need to eat anymore because I can start at the very next meal to make healthier choices. Or I can start tomorrow to make healthier choices. So thought substitutions can happen here. You can also have actual behavior substitutions in the sense that, well, I'm feeling really stressed right now and my normal coping is to have a chocolate bar or have some candy. And so the behavior substitution might be, well, when I get that urge from now on, I'm going to get up from my desk and I'm going to walk for 10 minutes. And when I come back, then I will reassess how I feel. So those kind of substitutions can actually be really important to helping people realize that they have a choice. They don't have to follow what they've always done. And so that can be something along with helping relationships that can, can really move them toward action. Now, helping relationships actually, that's one that they may have to look both inside and outside of the home. So a spouse may be a natural support system. A spouse could also be a barrier if they themselves are not ready to make a change, for example, in diet or food. And that's something that would be part of your conversation. Now, in terms of these people in preparation, if they're really feeling like they're ready to move forward, you can talk to them about their confidence so that if they're not feeling confidence about something, this is where you can ask them if you can provide information on anything in particular. Um, and an ability, if we're going with the exercise example, you know, from your perspective, you might be able to now increase their confidence in performing specific types of exercises so that they feel like they can take action in the near future. And then help them create a SMART goal and maybe even actually doing the prescription, an exercise prescription. Sorry, there we go. Now, once they're ready, they're in the action phase, that means they are taking steps, doing actual behaviors around that area that they were hoping to improve. Now, for these individuals, they're going to continue with self-liberation, helping relationships, and counter-conditioning. But these 
processes of stimulus control and reinforcement management are going to be huge. And that is because as they work through actually doing the behavior, they want to try to manage the cues in the environment, the stimuli, so that certain things might not lead to a poor behavior, or in some cases you can use cues to lead to something good. And then kind of rewarding yourself sometimes when you're doing something positive so that you're looking forward to doing it again. Let's dive a little bit more into each of these. As far as stimulus control, this can be kind of important, and you probably all know this. You know, back to my previous example of I'm feeling really stressed right now and I really want to have some candy. You know, if I don't have candy in my desk, that is going to be a deterrent right there. Whereas if I have a tendency to buy a bag of candy and leave it in my desk drawer, that's going to be tempting right there. So managing your environment can be really helpful. So, you know, somebody who's looking to improve their nutrition, you know, maybe one of their goals early on as they're in the preparation and moving into the action phase would be to clean out the kitchen. And maybe they feel bad about throwing out good food. You could talk about creative and positive ways to do that. You know, how might you be able to do something positive for someone else, but yet, you know, get rid of this junk food. You could talk about donating to a food pantry, some things that aren't um, in the healthy nutrition category you're trying to reach, um, you know, and putting in some healthy alternatives. So you get rid of the junk food. What might it look like if you had a bowl of fruit on the countertop instead as a prompt right in front of you when you're hungry? Oh, there's an apple right there. That's so easy. I'm just going to do that. So that can be really helpful. This idea of healthy um, cues and removing unhealthy cues. Now, what about rewards? So with this, you know, this doesn't have to be punishment. It could actually be rewards. For example, you could talk to somebody, let's say they've been exercising for a good month now and they're doing really well with nutrition and you know, they've lost a few pounds and their clothes are fitting differently. You know, perhaps something that becomes a reward actually fuels the next phase of continuing that, those behaviors. You know, what if you um, got new workout clothes? You've been working out for a month, things are fitting differently. You know, what you don't want to encourage is using things like food as reward. That might be sort of a negative. Um, or you could do something altogether different like a massage or a trip or, you know, things that um, don't necessarily have to have a negative impact on the process. But self-talk is also a good one. You know, being kind to yourself. You know, I did this. I totally did this and I can do this again. I can keep doing this. You know, that building that confidence and self-efficacy. So sort of continuing with this exercise example, these people are in it now. They're doing it. So you could go ahead and review physical activity guidelines. This is what you don't want to do with somebody in pre-contemplation. They're not even remotely thinking about doing exercise. So you're not going to throw in there, oh, you need 150 minutes a week of moderate activity. They don't want to hear that. But this person may because they're doing it. They're in the action phase. So go ahead and write the exercise prescription. They may be eager and want more information. Follow up with their progress. They may be excited to share. You know, hey, I had been doing, you know, a 20-minute 
walk and I was only getting about a mile in and now I can get almost two in that same, you know, so help them, you know, enjoy their progress and talk about it. Congratulate them on how they're doing and their improvement. Encourage them to meet the guidelines or explore new things. Ask about maybe even, you know, doing this for the greater good, doing walks or runs for nonprofits, American Heart Association, for example, or sign up for a 5K that raises money for a certain thing that they really value. You know, so having those kind of conversations can really help them move forward. Now, ideally, when somebody has been doing that lifestyle change for more than six months, they're in the maintenance phase. And here, they're feeling pretty good about it. And so for them, it'll be about looking for those barriers or things that tend to promote moving backward, the relapse. The same kind of approaches work here as they did in the action phase, helping relationships, social support, counter conditioning or substitutes, controlling your environment, the stimulus control, giving yourself rewards now and then. So you'll see some of these same things are coming up here. And for these, continue to congratulate them. You know, consider recommending variety, some cross-training, keeping up their interests. So if they seem to be like, well, you know, I used to be doing some walking and I just don't feel like doing it anymore, but I have a friend who's doing CrossFit and I know that's a lot, but, you know, I'm sort of interested, you know, just encourage, be open, help them explore and then review how this is working for them, their positives. What, what have they learned? What are the benefits that they've received? They may be excited to share that they've, you know, gone down on their diabetics med- or their diabetes medication or their heart pressure or blood pressure medication. Um, and then maybe even write a different prescription, encourage them to explore something new and consider reaching out to others or being an example for other family members who are considering changes too. So that social support for others. Now, this is the part that may be a little bit different. The textbook briefly talks about termination. Now, while that may be really important, for example, in smoking cessation or um, you know, alcoholism, for exercise and healthy eating, weight management, those you're sort of permanently in maintenance. You don't really terminate a behavior necessarily, but you do need to manage lapses and relapses. Now, lapses are usually some sort of brief slip and resumption of old behaviors. And so this might be an opportunity to learn. They usually quickly return to the action phase, but it might be good to have a conversation about, well, so what do you think may have contributed here? And you'll find out, oh yeah, it was Christmas time or holidays and things just got out of hand and I ran out of time. But now that I have the time, I'm back at it. As opposed to a relapse is where they return to a much earlier stage or they return to that stage and stay for a long time. So go back, reassess. Maybe priorities have changed for them. You know, find out what that trigger might have been. You know, go through maybe some other coping strategies, things that adjusting as needed. And again, an opportunity to learn. So ideally, as I said, it's not a linear model and that's okay. It just creates more of an opportunity for conversation. And the more that you can have those conversations with a coach-like approach, those individuals will realize that, you know, 
They don't have to be defeated by setbacks. It can just be an opportunity to learn and move forward and that they've solved these issues. They've developed new behaviors before and changed their lifestyle, so they certainly can do it again. So we'll continue in the next lectures to explore this a little bit further about how to have coaching conversations and then how to address some of the individual lifestyle behaviors. So stay tuned. <music>